And a very good morning to you all. I was, uh, I was sat there this morning reading my Bible with bright sunshine coming through the windows. I think, you know, spring is on the way, and I think it's slightly weird someone leading the service wearing gloves. But there we go. <laughs> Please do have your, your Bibles open at Philippians chapter 1. We are, we are, as we normally do, and it's our bread and butter on a Sunday morning, we're working through books of the Bible, one chunk at a time, working right the way through, letting the Word of God set the agenda. And, and when the Word of God sets the agenda, it can, it can be pretty hard on us, can't it? It can be quite challenging. And there are some challenging things in what we read this morning. We're going to be focusing on verses 27 to the end of chapter 1. But before we do that, let's commit our time to the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have it in our own language. We have a copy of it sitting on our laps, many of us, or on our phones. Uh, Lord, it is, it is so easy for us to access this remarkable, miraculous book. And Lord, it is your word. And so it is, as it is preached this morning, we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through it. That you would move our hearts to be obedient Lord, that you would speak to our hearts about things that need to change. That you would reveal more of the wonder of who you are and what you have done to us this morning. For we ask this in your name. Amen. Philippians chapter 1 then. And uh, we, we, will, we had a reading from verse 20, but we have actually dealt with most of, most of that up to verse 26. And if you missed that, then please do look on our website. You'll find it, it all there. Very challenging as well. In 2014, British Prime Minister David Cameron, remember him, who we only seem to really remember for Brexit now, uh, actually was being re remembered for something else. He pushed for the promotion of what he called British values. You heard that expression? Now, if you work in education or if you're one of our young people, you'll know, you'll know a bit more about that. British values. Uh, there they are up on the screen. They are now actively taught in schools. Can you take it off the screen for a second? Take it off. Because actually what I, what I wanted to say is these British values evolved into five things. And you've looked at them now. But I wonder if you actually know what these five things are. Five values of being a British person. Hands up if you're British. Okay, these are your values, so you should know them. Okay, let's see. Can anyone tell me what, what do you think is, a, is, is a, an actual value, British? Hands up, anything. You've had a sneak peek, so... Democracy. Democracy, okay, it's got to be some democracy in there, hasn't there? Yes, anything else? There's, there's five because there are five fingers, yeah? So we, we teach it to the children now with five fingers. So I don't know which one it is. They actually are specific as well. So democracy, anything else? Personal freedom. So individual liberty, I think they call it. But yes, personal freedom. Something else? Come on. That's two. Respect. So mutual respect for beliefs and religions. That's right. Yeah, and cultures. Good. Mutual respect. Two more. Rule of law. Absolutely. Wouldn't be British without that, would we? No other country has it. We have it. <laughs> anyway, and there's one more. Democracy, rule of law, individual liberty, mutual respect, and, oh, this is a tricky one, this one. Is it tolerance? Someone said tolerance? Yes, tolerance. We're a tolerant nation. Okay, well, if you didn't know that, then you know, now you do. 
Tiago will be probably more familiar with those because I'm sure he will have to have studied them, of course, to become for his UK citizenship exam, yeah, because he wants to be British. Uh, and that has doubtless, he is now apparently, uh, that will be doubtless have, have left him more qualified to be British than the rest of us. His head is probably full of useless trivia about our history, in fact. We know it is, don't we? Uh, and, and, and about our constitution and about how our government works. I love the brother. I love him. It's stuff that most of us who are born here, though, don't really know about. And yet he's, he's been drilled in it and he's got all of this trivia. Now, I'm sure you're aware there's a danger in the way that some of those, what we're calling British values now, um, might be interpreted and might be uh, applied and defined, but generally speaking, it is right, isn't it? Isn't it that that there should be distinctive values that we hold together as a, as a nation, as a community group, as a, as a group, a collective, things that we consider indispensable if we're to keep hold of our freedoms and, and the things that we enjoy in our society. Now, David Cameron actually wrote an article that is still on the .gov.uk website. Uh, when he launched this campaign. In it, he states, listen, the values I'm talking about, I'm not going to do his voice, uh, a belief in freedom, tolerance of others, accepting personal and social responsibility, respecting and upholding the rule of law, are the things we should try to live by every day. To me, they're as British as the union flag, as football, as fish and chips. There you go. Makes you proud to be British, doesn't it? And I want to suggest to you this morning that just as there are British values that are obvious and definitive, as obvious and definitive as fish and chips to us, there are also values for God's kingdom. The kingdom of which all Christians are citizens that are equally non-negotiable. They're typical. They're, they should be obvious. They should be expected as citizens and that's why Paul can write to the church in Philippi look at verse 27 saying listen whatever happens conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ okay this is a powerful command that this this starts with we are to conduct it that's this is it this is the essential of who you are says Paul you conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ and that, in a nutshell, is how citizens of God's kingdom are to live in a way that is worthy of the gospel. Now, think about that expression for just a second. Could there be any standard higher than this? Think about it. Worthy. Worthy of what? Of the gospel. Worthy of the gospel. Think this through with me. The gospel tells us, this is the good news, Christian good news, tells us that God, the holy and all-powerful creator, who lives in unapproachable light, has reached down through his son Jesus into this dark and corrupted world, a world ruined with sin, and has rescued rebels like you and me. And he hasn't done this because he saw some sort of potential in us, a spark, something, something admirable. 
No, the Bible tells us we were dead in transgressions and sins. We were on the enemy side, says the Bible, against God, rightly deserving his wrath, his wrath sitting over us. But that because of his mercy, his compassionate love and grace, Jesus has paid our ransom with his own life blood. Jesus himself said, there is no greater love than when someone lays down their life for their friend, right? You know, to, to hear the gunshot, and as you hear the gunshot, to throw yourself in front of the person that you love, to take the bullet. A staggering love, isn't it? Jesus is lifting that up and saying, you know, that's the greatest expression of love that you're going to see in this world. You cannot give more, in other words. You're giving everything for that person. You know, this is the love that a husband should have for his wife, to lay his life down for his wife. It's challenging, isn't it? And some of you husbands out there are thinking, well, maybe on a good day, yeah? Would you do that? Hear the gunshot? You jump in front of her? But listen, this is the point. In a staggering act of love, and we've got to get this, we've got to let this grip our hearts, God, in the person of Jesus Christ, has done this very thing, and not just for his friends. He's done it for his enemies, for sinners. That's a love so great, so breathtaking, that we struggle to consider it even rational, don't we? It is outrageous love, undeserved, outrageous. And we, while I'm saying all of this, we get this, we are to live lives worthy of that. <laughs> okay, you can go home now, that's enough, isn't it? In one sense, that's clearly impossible, isn't it? How am I going to live a life worthy of that? But surely, the imperative behind this, what Paul's banging at here, is that we should strive towards this worthy life with everything that we can muster. Got it? It needs to become as obvious to us, as people look at us, as the Union Jack is to a British person. Now, I don't know your story or how it was that you, uh, you came to follow Jesus. Not for all of you, I do for some of you. And, and I'm, I'm talking to now to those of us here who have made that decision. We've decided we want to follow Jesus. Sometimes the gospel, the Christian message, is presented to people, and you might have been one of these, as if it was some kind of a life improvement program, right? I'm sure we've all heard this. The idea that, you know, you come and follow Jesus and your life will be better, right? Church is wonderful, and it should be. You can have lots of good friends who love you, who care for you, who will visit you when you're sick. You've got a big family here. And you'll, have, you'll also have an added spiritual dimension, you know, spiritual dimension to who you are, you know, you're a, you're a richer, fuller person if you come to Christ. And you can feel really good about ticking that box at the next census and knowing who you are and what you believe. And there's a sense of identity in it. And there's a lot of positive things about all of that. And sometimes the gospel is presented, uh, you know, in other places, more like an insurance policy for the afterlife. Maybe some of you heard the gospel in that way. You know, you deserve hell 
But Jesus has died to save you and to take you to heaven. Start following him, and they wouldn't put it as crassly as this, but you've got your ticket punched for for paradise, right? Now, there's elements of truth in a lot of these things. These are the kinds of ways that people might present the gospel. And as I say, there's at least an element of truth in both of those examples. But following Jesus is about more than just simply what you may or may not get out of it. There's a cost to following Jesus. There's something you must give. In fact, the demand that Jesus himself made was so extreme that crowds of would-be disciples walked away. The majority, at times, just left. Jesus said this. I'm sure we're familiar with these words. If anyone would come after me, if anyone wants to follow me, he or she must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now, do you see what Jesus is saying here? Look at it. Here are the conditions for following Jesus. Here we're reading the small print, aren't we? I suppose it's actually the big print. Here are the conditions for following Jesus. And there's no other options on the table here. This is it. You're either in with this or, or, or you're not. Deny yourself and take up a cross. You know, putting it bluntly, the condition for following Jesus is taking up a death sentence. In Jesus' day, the only people you saw carrying a cross were heading to their place of execution, right? In short, Jesus is saying then, give me everything. Give me everything. That sounds really strong. That does not sound like a so-called seeker-friendly message, does it? Give me everything. You'd be justified in asking, well, who would do that? But the simple fact is that nobody who has ever genuinely counted the cost and given everything to Christ has ever lost out or regretted it. Ask them. In fact, as Jesus goes on to say, and you can see it there, still in that verse, it's only those who give their lives to him who actually end up saving their lives. You lose out if you don't. Your life is lost if you don't give Jesus everything. So this then is the cost of citizenship. To become a citizen of God's kingdom, we must give him everything. In exchange, though, for for that which is beyond worth. And it's only when you've got that straight in your head, which is why I've spent time belaboring the point this morning, that you'll actually be able to process what Paul says next in this chapter, as we look at it this morning. In these few short verses, and it's not comprehensively dealing with the subject, we're going to get more as we go through the letter, but Paul is describing here the values of the kingdom to which we now belong. These are as distinctively Christian as fish and chips is British, right? So let's look at these kingdom values. There's three here. In verse 27, the kingdom value is unity in the gospel. In verse 28, confidence in the gospel. And in verses 29 to 30, as we end, suffering 
before the gospel. So we'll look at each of these in turn. Let's start with the first. Unity in the gospel, verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, when I come and see you, or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Now, Paul clearly doesn't know for certain whether he will get a chance to visit his friends in Philippi again. But if they are to take to heart the strong command to live as worthy citizens, born of the gospel, then either way, whether he comes or whether he doesn't come, he says here, he can be sure that a good report is going to reach him. Now, the imagery behind these words in this verse is probably supposed to make the readers think about soldiers in the Roman army. He often brings these sorts of illustrations in, doesn't he, the Apostle Paul? Remember, Philippi's got really strong military connections. It's like a, it's like a, a, a battalion for, for the Roman Empire and also a retirement, you know, as I said before, you know, it's like a Bogner Regis for, for retired soldiers. Maybe that's harsh on Bogner Regis. I should stop saying that, shouldn't I? Okay, but here's the imagery here. Paul's saying here, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man, for the faith of the gospel. And you've got a picture there, a platoon of Roman soldiers. Can you, can you picture them there on the battlefield? All in their smart uniforms, looking immaculate. And they're advancing against the enemy. And as the enemy starts to approach, it shields up. And the shields, you know, the Romans were so good at this, weren't they? Interlocking their shields together so that they, they become, as the, as, the, as the onslaught comes at them, they become like one unit together, all locked together. And they plant their feet on the ground. They lean into each other, lean on each other. As the enemy crashes, they're so interlocked that the enemy just comes and breaks against them. Yeah, it makes no impact. It's a great image, isn't it? Because even the weakest soldier in that scenario is, is bolstered and strengthened by those around them. The whole is much stronger than the sum of its parts individually, isn't it? And it can only happen when they are really united. When they're moving, moving and thinking as one. When they've got a single objective in mind. And so likewise just, you know, 2,000-odd years later, as another local church, only in Walton this time, we should take this to heart, the importance of this gospel unity. Citizens together, living worthy of the gospel. We must stand firm then, says Paul, in one spirit. That is, you know, the spirit is the internal life of the person here, their vitality their drive, their life force. That's the idea behind that word. And we've got to contend, says Paul, as one man. Or actually, as the ESV more literally and probably accurately puts it, with one mind, actually. With one mind striving together. And with all you know, our intellect and our affection and our will. So when you put this all together, what Paul is saying here, if I put that as a package... You see us striving together for the faith of the gospel 
as a church, as a body, with everything that we are and with all the energy and the life that we have at our disposal. And you see this idea of, of citizenship and identity and belonging is all melded into this, that this, this becomes the Christian gospel value in who we are and how we live. So what is it actually specifically that we're striving for, this little battalion? What is the faith of the gospel, as Paul puts it here? Well, listen to the way that Jude puts it in that little book toward the end of the, uh, the New Testament. Jude writes and says, Look, dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. That's the sense in which faith is being used here, the faith of the gospel. That's what Paul's talking about. The faith refers then to the, the teaching that these believers received from Paul, the teaching of the apostles, the sent ones, first sent out by Jesus to proclaim the good news about him. The gospel message, the message of the cross, and all of that good kind of theology that underpins that message. This is what we're standing firm in. Which leads me to ask, you know, when was, this is an honest challenge, when was the last time that you read a good book about the theology of the cross of Christ, or about the cross of Christ, or, or, or thought more deeply about it, read a book that would encourage you to think more deeply about how, how does this all work together? What does it all mean? We can so easily have a superficial understanding of things like that. Jesus loves me and I love him and I'm trusting him. But, but let's get a deeper understanding into, into what actually happened at the cross. Why does it work? How would I explain this to people who would question me about it? When's the last time you thought deeply about that? I suggest that you know the book club that we run in the church, we're constantly having a go at books like that, and it's been a real blessing to us. The challenge here, you see, is that it is not enough to just leave it to the pastors and the elders of the church. You know, it's not just enough to you know keep keeping the metaphor the same. It's just just the generals, just the the centurions or whatever it is. Just they're the only ones really that know what they're doing. And so we all just pile onto the battlefield uh, and go and do our own thing and leave it to them to somehow try and get order out of the chaos. No, it's not, it's not enough for the pastors and the elders of the church to have good doctrine and to have the message of the gospel straight. This is something we've got to all be contending for. We've all got to know what we believe. And we need to be able then with that, to be able to lock arms, to plant our feet and defend the gospel against the onslaught of the world. Or we're not going to be very effective at all. And this is no trivial matter. Because so many churches up and down this land, and we'll be very aware of this, won't we, have lost that gospel. They've found themselves in a situation where there's one or two left on the battlefield. And they're... And they're frustrated and bewildered by what's going on about them and unable to function as a church together. 
And so this gospel can get watered down and it can get shifted to the sidelines in so many different ways, can't it? It might be an overemphasis on social action, perhaps, to the extent that that starts to take all our energy and time, and it's a lot less threatening. People like us when we do it, and so we'll, we'll just put all of our energy into that instead of this, this message that when you preach it, people get upset. Or it could be a desire just simply to make the gospel more palatable. Well, let's actually just change that gospel. <laughs> let's make it less offensive. Let's, let's never mention hell again. Let's not mention sin or judgment, and let's see how that works. Or it could be a shift of focus, you see this in many churches, to things that seem more sensational and more dramatic, and that becomes all-consuming. It could be a love of controversy, a love of novelty, spending all our time just thinking about things that really don't matter. Or getting so bogged down by internal politics or quarrels that the gospel that way gets pushed to the sidelines. The devil's got all kinds of ways of doing this, hasn't it? I'm sure you can think of many ways, many more ways that this can happen. Um, and by the way, some of those things I've mentioned, you know, if we get them in the right balance, they're very good and they have their place, don't they? When they're not allowed to take over. And so like a platoon of well-trained soldiers, we've got to watch each other's backs. We've got to watch the battlefield. We've got to make sure that that kind of thing doesn't happen. Contending together in the gospel. The second thing that Paul mentions here in verse 28 is confidence in the gospel. Let me just pick up again at verse 27. Paul says, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contest, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, and that, but that you will be saved, and that by God. Now remember, city of Philippi is this Roman stronghold full of people who are hostile to the gospel, actually. They're, they're committed to the emperor. They, they kind of worship him, in a sense, a lot of them. Paul and Silas have done time in prison here, in this very city. The city authorities would have viewed Christian, the Christians who lived amongst them with suspicion, troublemakers, likely to cause some kind of a riot, perhaps, cause a fuss. Those who practiced the pagan religions of the Roman Empire would have considered the beliefs of these Christians to be, you know, their belief in one God to be very offensive, an insult to them. Clearly, the church in Philippi, according to verse 28, look, was facing opposition. This stuff's bubbling up around them all the time. It's perhaps a frightening place to live. That kind of opposition can be frightening, can't it? But in the face of that frightening opposition, Paul wants them to be confident and to be courageous. And notice how this courage comes directly out of their united stand together in the faith of the gospel. It's much easier to be courageous when you've got all your comrades around you with their shields and everything in place than it is to be standing there alone on the battlefield. It's only when the church is striving to live in a manner worthy of the gospel that both they, says Paul, 
and those who oppose them will actually see the reality of where they stand. It's what verse 28 calls a sign. It's very interesting what he says here. Look, let's have a think about what he's saying. Our united stand in the gospel, says Paul, in verse 28, seems to lift up these two clear signposts. So if we're, if we're living consistently, worthy of the gospel, two signposts suddenly go up around us. First of all, says Paul, the world around us will see a signpost come up. There it is. Especially those who oppose us. They'll be made to face the reality of the destruction that awaits them. That's what Paul's saying here. Let's think about how that works. The author, Alec Matir, puts it like this. So often, the last bastion of hope in the unconverted is that somehow all will be well after death. The truth that will not be faced is the eternal judgment of God. It was the first ploy of the tempter to deny a God of judgment. You will not surely die. And human eyes remain sealed to this conviction until they are opened by a true spiritual conviction. That's very perceptive. And we must then never underestimate, first of all, the importance of our being united as a church in the belief that there is a judgment. There is, there is a literal hell, a place of judgment, a place of horror and destruction. And secondly, the power of the testimony then of lives lived with so much confidence in heaven that, that it's just obvious to people. We're not invested in a comfortable life this side of eternity. Those two things working hand in hand are incredibly powerful. They've become a signpost to the world around us. This sign has become especially large and clear when we face suffering and hardship. It's then the world sees most clearly what someone's living for, isn't it? If we can face tragedies and sickness and bereavement, saying with the Apostle Paul, as he says in Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Well, that compels the unbelieving world around us to ask, what's the reason for that kind of hope? So that's the first signpost. It goes up. A sign of judgment coming. Secondly, when we live lives worthy of the gospel, it puts a sign up to us. Suddenly we see a great big sign. A sign that we will indeed be saved, and that by God, says Paul in verse 29. How? How has that become a sign to us? Well, I think the, Paul, the Apostle Paul is, is directing us once again back to that key verse, that great repeated theme in his letter. You remember that God, who has begun a good work in us, is going to carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. As we live lives worthy of the gospel and, 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 and have those kingdom values large and writ large in our lives, we're starting to see the effect of, of God's work in our life, evidence of a continuing work in us. 
But he explains this sign more fully in these last two verses where we see the final kingdom value. Let's take a look at it together because they sort of meld together. Third kingdom value is suffering for the gospel. Verse 29 says this, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now here I still have. So as we live lives worthy of the gospel, we've seen that unity and confidence are indispensable kingdom values. But here Paul adds what might seem to you a bit of an unexpected third, and that is suffering. Suffering is a kingdom value. That's a very interesting thing indeed. And I take it that the suffering that Paul is talking about here, let's get this get this straight, is not the suffering of disease or sickness or any other natural effect of living in a broken world. You know, we do, of course, suffer in these ways too. But the suffering here is suffering for the gospel. That is suffering because we have decided to live a life worthy of the gospel. It's clear that that's what Paul means because he parallels it with his own current situation as he's languishing in chains in Rome for defending and confirming the gospel, as he tells us. The first thing that Paul emphasises here is, and this is quite staggering, take a look at it, it's God's grace has been at work in the Philippians, that's what he's saying there, because it has been granted, look at the language used, it has been of grace, granted, given, a gift, to them to believe on Christ. That's what he's saying here. It's a clear reminder yet again that faith, belief in Christ, is a gift from God. It's granted. We believe in Christ because the Spirit of God has opened our eyes to see who he is, to see what he has done and our desperate need of salvation and to, and to enable us to put our trust in him. That might be controversial enough for some of you, but the surprise is that it's also, this is also true of our suffering for the gospel. This too has been granted to us. That's a surprising verse, actually, when you look at it, isn't it? In fact, suffering for the gospel is constantly spoken of as a blessing in the Bible. Did you know that? Let me remind you what Jesus says. In his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do you let that, those verses just sink in for a second? When you suffer for the sake of Christ or for defending and upholding the gospel, it raises that sign once more right in your face, doesn't it? You're his. This is a kingdom value. You're actually starting to look like your king. It's what his life looked like, isn't it? 
And so Paul can say to his close friend Timothy, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a cause and effect situation. And Jesus reassures his first disciples. Let's just think at this as we close. John 15, 19. If you belonged to the world, okay, this if you're just a citizen of this world, it would love you as its own. Think about that. As it is, though, says Jesus, you do not belong to this world. I've chosen you out of the world. We're citizens of a different kingdom. And that is why the world hates you. That's a great verse to end on. Because it reminds us once again, it picks up this theme, doesn't it? That we're not citizens of this world anymore. We are in fact, actually, as the Bible calls us, ambassadors. That is, we are, we are citizens of another kingdom, just living for a time, representing our king. Our king who gave his life for us and for whom and in whom we are united and we are courageous even in suffering. In fact, we're emboldened by persecution for his name's sake. And so I want to challenge us all this morning. Brothers and sisters, we need shaking up on this, don't we? We've not been called to a comfortable life. A life of nest building. Jesus does not demand that we take up our cushions. It's a cross that we're called to. We're called together. We're, we're called to stand united. So I wonder, will you join me as we close in taking a moment to think about what you're actually going to do about this? So we'll have a time of quiet as we come to the end of our service now. And you need to think, do you need to sort out your priorities? Do you need to do some learning? Find someone to read a book with. Read a book. Ground yourself in the foundations of the message of the gospel, the cross of Christ. Do you need to be braver? Do you need to stop hiding your faith? To stop soft peddling, diluting tell people that you believe 